Okay. What's up, everyone? It is uh, Wednesday the 15th, the day after Valentine's Day, which I suspect means a few of you are broke uh, for unfair reasons. Nevertheless, the live chat rolls on. This is the Promotional More Practice live chat. I'm the host of this lovely podcast. My name is Luke Thomas. You may or may not know me. Um, okay. So we'll go for about 90 minutes today. Lots to talk about. UFC 208 was over the weekend. I was there. A lot of controversy coming out of the main and co-main event anyway. Not a lot coming out of the rest of the card, but certainly a little bit there. There's actually two events this weekend. Bellator 172 with the return of Fedor Emelianenko is going to be on Saturday. And then on Sunday, uh, UFC on Fox, I think it's 105 at this point, UFC Halifax, which will be a Derek Lewis, Travis Brown, heavyweight headlined contest so that's interesting as well um let's see in addition to that we have some rumors about mayweather mcgregor my colleague ariel hawani reporting today two things one david branch has signed with uh ufc again remember he was in and left and then sort of rehabilitated himself and now he's back and then uh george st pierre appears to be imminently signing with the ufc again after declaring himself a free agent for whatever that was worth um so fair about to get to actually best place to do that of course is going to be in the comment section of mmafighting.com where this video is embedded uh, you can also do that on twitter at uh sbn luke thomas and you can use the hashtag chat rappers i will do that a little bit later in the program okay without further ado let's get my wawada mm-hmm delicioso all right and i had a i had a giant uh cup of coffee before this so i'm feeling great all right first question <clears throat> jermaine's shots after the bell hey luke had you been the referee for ufc 208 main event and i'd be woefully unqualified but okay when would you have taken a point away from jermaine after the first late shot, after the second late shot, or never at all? Uh, yes, so a couple of things we should mention about this. Number one, I think there is, um, insofar as some of the scoring is concerned for the main and co-main event, I'm I'm inclined to believe there might be like a bit of a hyper fixation about it because there's really nothing else on the card to talk about. Everyone was like, well, Poirier versus Miller was a great fight, and it was. Who could say otherwise? Um, but there wasn't a whole lot of meat to chew on after the fact. So I think there was a hyperfixation on some of the scoring in the co-main event. I'm as guilty of contributing to that as anyone else. In the main event, there's less a debate about that, but certainly an, an examination of um, these fouls. So I wonder to what extent we're overplaying this a, a little bit. But I do think it is at least worthy of some um, discussion. So I would have taken one after the second. I would have not have taken one after the first. And there's a few factors contributing to that decision. The first of which is I have to give a credit to the folks at um, Reddit, on the, the subreddit for MMA. Uh, I had incorrectly stated something about the unified rules, and they corrected me with citations, which I always appreciate. So shouts to those guys for getting it right. And basically what the rule states is you cannot strike after the bell, but... Um, uh, that the end of the round is not the bell. The end of the round is when the referee separates it. And actually, Big John McCarthy was on Brian Stan's radio show. Um, and the reason why that apparently that rule is that way is because the fighters may not hear the bell necessarily. So they need the physical act of the referee intervening. 
And when you hear that that 10 second clack, clack, clack before the round is over, that apparently is the cue to the referee to not only get a 10 second clock going in his head, 10 Mississippi, 9 Mississippi, or you know, 9 Mississippi, 8 Mississippi, whatever, however they do it, and then to, to position themselves close enough so that as soon as they hear the bell, they can jump in. Now, what's interesting about that is certainly I believe that the referee is going to be more attentive to the sound of the bell or the horn, whatever you want to call it, but we've seen instances where they can't hear it either. Um, so it's interesting that the rule is the referee uses the sound of the bell to intervene because the fighters won't necessarily be able to hear it, and so they need to see the physical act of the referee separating them. In other words, I get that the referee isn't fighting, but he's doing a job in there too. He is maybe not quite as liable to miss the bell, but we've seen historically can be liable in missing the bell. Um, so I don't know that that's really, I mean, I, th I think that rule is okay, but it's not great. There's obviously some problems with it and there might be some technological improvements we can create to fix that. Um, but nevertheless, if that's the case, then striking on the horn or even a touch after it, because the referee hasn't intervened is apparently okay. However, there are other factors according to referee, um, Rob Hines that go into this, namely, the intent, uh, the amount of damage, uh, among a number of other factors. And to me, that first shot landed pretty clean, and it was very, very razor close. So what I would do in that sense is, I'd, I, you know, I don't know if admonish is the word, but I certainly would have said something to Duran to me more than what Todd Anderson said, which was that shot was clean. Maybe it was clean, but you're getting a little too close for comfort. Um, be very, very careful about um, how you strike at the end of that round. And... Um, make sure you're monitoring yourself and using some level of discipline. And for the second one, I definitely would have taken a point um, because I would have given some kind of a heads up the first time, although apparently you could, have, you could have taken a point the first time. Like you don't need to give a warning before you take a point. You can take a point at, at any point um, without a warning. Uh, if you feel like, I mean, we, we give these, we empower these referees to have extraordinary latitude and how they make judgment calls. But the second one, I probably would have taken a point. To me, that was a little bit egregious. It was definitely uh, a little late for me and a little willful, right? Um, I, I don't know that she was necessarily trying to cheat, but I think she was trying to push it to the absolute maximum limit. And um, and whatever culpability Todd Anderson might have had, uh, and I think he does have some here. Uh, she has some, I think, as well. If not so much for the first one, definitely for the second one. I think a point being taken is warranted. However, here's the problem. Uh, because this is a judgment call and there's only one referee, if they choose or not choose to take a point, there's not much to be done about it. In other words, um, I think something I need – I wonder if there's an opportunity here to reevaluate how we do officiating in mixed martial arts. Like We talk a lot about um, – you know, does the scoring criteria need to be iterated? And I had a big long rant on the Monday Morning Analyst about it, and the answer to that I think is unequivocally yes. I think technological aids need to be added to the extent that they can. But I think we need to rethink how we do officiating as well. We have one officiator for the contest, and they're required to make incredibly difficult split decision uh, you know, calls. And I don't know how smart that is. I wonder if it'd be smarter if we had two additional referees uh, outside of the cage monitoring what happened 
through the use of technology or whatever the case may be. And if those two referees overrule the main referee, maybe you take a point. Maybe if they decide they wanted to take a point, then they do that. Um, maybe you don't like that particular arrangement, but you think there might be something else we can do to add to this uh, level of officiating. Because to me, having one referee, you think, oh, one referee, two persons, what could they possibly miss? Yeah, they can miss a lot. They can miss a lot. Um, if not in this case, many, many others you can point to. And because they don't really have the aid of technology to review their own decision, I mean, they do in some capacity, but it's very, very limited. You know, uh, they're going to get things wrong a lot. I know a lot of people are out there being like, I like the human element. I really don't. I'm not one of these guys who likes the idea of having chaos because we have a limited capacity to, you know, cognitively handle all this overhead and then make decisions on top of that. I, I really don't find that to be a very compelling argument. What to me is a much more um, rational basis by which to conduct sport if getting things right has massive consequences, and it does, is actually getting it right and using as many tools as our disposal without, you know, profoundly interfering with the product to get that. And we don't we do not do that at all right now. We're like, oh, we gave judges monitors. Do we even know if they're using them? And if they are, how often? And to what extent is it impacting them? Like, we have no ability to talk to judges to find any of this out. We just trust that those who are in charge of the commission are doing their best job. And maybe someone like Andy Foster is. He, has, he seems like a very reputable guy who is trying to do the right thing for mixed martial arts. But it's like... I don't. I don't know the answer to that. Do you know the answer to that? Is there any way to measure the answer to that? Like we're we're working with such limited information here, um, and such secrecy and such a lack of transparency that it just it's just maddening. It's maddening. So I know your question was about like refereeing in particular in that point uh, specifically, but I, I just feel like the general apparatus of officiating is so two thousand and two still. It's 2002 with like 2005 upgrades. Like we are deeply, woefully behind where we should be. Not merely in judging, uh, maybe even in timekeeping, maybe even uh, the way in which we signal the beginning and ends of rounds, maybe the way in which we conduct officiating. You know, we oh, here's one guy who will control the whole thing. All right, well, if that one guy is stupendous, that sounds just fine. But what if they're not? And by the way, most commonly they're not. We're just going to let that go. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you have the three referees scenario I posited only in UFC title fights or, or whatever the case may be. Or if an organization can, if an organization chooses to opt for extra referees who work outside the cage through the aid of technology, right? Um, and the fighters both agree to it, then you do it, you know, or something. I don't know. I'm just sort of trying to come up with some kind of idea to advance it. And if that's not the right way, then it's not the right way. You come up with a better one, and let's entertain that and debate the merits of that. But where we stand today is terrible, super terrible. Uh, censorship. Oh, this ought to be good. Uh, Luke, over the past several months, it's been increasingly common to find certain articles on MMAfighting.com with blocked comments sections. You mean closed. These articles are clearly controversial in nature, and it seems obvious that the mods, the mods are just the staff. We don't employ anyone who works the moderating section. So we say the mods, you're literally talking about the people who run the site, okay? Don't want the users on the site to engage in a dialogue pertaining to these issues. That's not true. I find this amusing because the last time I checked, this website is based in a country where people actually have the right to express their opinions on a platform such as this. Boy, could you be more wrong. 
you do live in a country where the right to express your opinion exists, but that is a question about to what extent the government can stop you from expressing that, not to what extent private entities in private space can limit the use of speech, which is entirely legal. Um, even the SJW, the Social Justice Warrior Donks, over at Bloody Elbow, keep their comment sections open to socio-politically based articles. They also have a moderating staff. We don't. Um, if the article that's posted on this site is so controversial that we can't comment on it, why post it in the first place? Because we have a responsibility to report the news and the news actors and what they are up to. We don't have a responsibility to entertain um, gutter discussion which is inevitably what happens. Maybe you don't engage that. Maybe you guys watching it don't engage in that. But what ends up happening is there are a number of bad actors. There are crabs in the barrel who like to pull everything else down, and it makes it a totally untenable situation. Because as I've explained before, a lot of times people sort of look at the comment section of censorship. It may not be that case, at least not the way you think of it. It's a manpower issue. If they don't have the manpower to fully moderate the kinds of comment sections that get extraordinarily out of hand, like the debate over Cain Velasquez's brown pride. Is there a debate to be had on both sides? You know, to what extent there are sides in that debate? Yeah, sure. Some people like it, some people don't. And those people, to some extent, should be able to uh, explain their viewpoints in a common, civilized way. But that's not what happens. People post pictures of bestiality. They post pictures of feces. They post pictures of Nazis. They say incredibly outrageous and not like, Tyrone Woodley racist things that you might consider. I'm talking about straight up N-word use of monkey imagery kind of thing, like categorically the most racist thing imaginable. And it's a tax on our time to try and police that. So rather than do that, we let you read the article. You are allowed to tweet us. You're allowed to go even on another comment section if you want. Hell, you can create a fan post if you want about that. People aren't out there deleting fan posts. And by the way, look at the fan post. It's a bunch of people complaining about the same thing you are. That's not censorship. Get up there and do it. But but are we going to allow a place for the worst of the worst to get up there and pollute the space we've we've tried to contribute for honest dialogue? Don't blame us for it. Blame all the other donks who cannot have a civilized conversation. Um, since when did MMA fighting become a receptacle for censorship? I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. The word fa <laughs> the word the word fascism. Oh boy, is this the hottest take on earth? Gets thrown around way too much these days. I know, right? But that seems to be a present element on this site. Yes. MMA fighting a home for fascists, y'all. And restricting our voices only adds to my argument. Oh boy, you do seem like an aggrieved party. Yes, I am sorry that the world has uh let you down. Oh, God. That is funny. That's so funny. All right. I, I mean, there's a big discussion underneath it, which I will leave up to the extent that it doesn't get polluted. Um, okay. Thoughts on the three-man booth. This is from UFC 208. <laughs> fascism. Oh, my God. I mean, if you use the word fascism in that context... I cannot, I, I honestly, I cannot think of a better case of someone being like, everybody, hello, my name is this guy. Um, I'd like to use the word fascism. Just one timeout, small clarification. I don't have the first clue what the word fascism means, but 
sounds powerful to throw it out there. So I'm just gonna let y'all know I'm doing that. Okay, everyone good? All right, all right, let's go. All right, thoughts on the three-man booth. I felt like Rogan and DC were spot on and worked really well with each other, and Anik came off as a third wheel. Not because Anik is a bad commentator by any stretch, but because he was being dominated by the other two and had nothing constructive to add since Rogan and DC did a good job of covering all that needed to be said. Yeah, that would be one of my complaints too. I think you could say, hey, is John Anik a great commentator? No doubt about it. Could you say something like um, Daniel Cormier? Is he a great color commentator? Absolutely. And a very different kind of color commentator than Joe Rogan. I think one of the things that this spotlighted was that Yes, Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier are technically both color commentators, but you can see that they're a very different kind of color commentators, right? They focus on different aspects. They have different perspectives. They have different ways of delivering their message. Surprisingly, Rogan seemed slightly more buttoned up than DC. DC, I can, you know, DC laughed several, <laughs> several times to the broadcast, and Rogan has on occasion as well, but you get the idea. A little bit more um, relaxed in certain situations. Anyway. But they drowned out Anik. I think if you're looking for the best example of a three-man booth, I don't see how it gets better than Jim Lampley, who, you know, I don't know what kind of character he is, but there you go. Jim Lampley, uh, Max Kellerman, and Roy Jones Jr. And the truth about that is, is that the way it works is Jim Lampley drives that bus. And Roy Jones talks a little bit more technical specifics, and Max Kellerman draws larger observations but there is a mixing in between. In fact, even Jim Lampley on occasion will talk a little bit of tactics, you know, not heavily so. And RJ, or Roy Jones Jr. might talk a little bit about something that bleeds into another person's territory. But by and large, they stay in their lane. So it's not really that they observe what they are supposed to say and not supposed to say. It's not really that they observe the fact that they need to be parsimonious when discussing um, what they're seeing. But they also know they've got to let Lampley lead and Lampley takes control of it in that kind of way too. I think Anik might be a little bit reluctant to force himself on the broadcast in that way. And maybe doesn't feel like he has earned the right to, I don't know. I haven't spoken to him about it, but um, so it, it really all depends on your preference. You might think that, Hey, look, I like this. It was a work in progress the first time to your point. They didn't do a lot of uh, um, sharing <laughs> with him. But maybe they will in the future. Maybe this was just a one-time thing. I personally believe that the two-man booth is just better in general than the three-man booth. My view is that the three-man booth is significantly more difficult and can work, clearly. It obviously can work. It's just a lot harder to do. So you just have to ask yourself, is that something that you want or not? Um, and... I personally don't, but I don't think it's so offensively bad that we have to can it right away. I do think that they've probably got a case to make that trying it a few more times will be the way to go. But, you know, one of the things they're going to do with Dominic Cruz, I think, at 209, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, Dominic Cruz, I mean, there's not much better commentators than him out there as an analyst or on the mic uh, calling fights. And yet he still talks a lot. So I wonder how he and Joe are going to share that responsibility. Um, couple of true or falses here. I'll skip one and go to the other. Although I know some of you guys hate this. Ian McCall must have pissed off every single MMA god to get his last five fights canceled. I don't know what he did. 
I tried to get him on the show this week, and he just doesn't really want to talk. But he couldn't even leave. I couldn't get home for a couple of days after 208. He was stuck in the hospital. Anderson Silva's stock didn't rise or drop given his performance against Brunson. I'd say it rose modestly and definitely didn't drop, obviously. Jacare's top control is better than Habib's. Um, it's better than Habib's insofar as a submission hunting is concerned, yes. He might be a better passer, too. Uh, no, he's definitely a better passer. Um, but he does different things, you know. Swanson versus Lobov has to be one of the most baffling matchups recently made. I don't like this fight, man. Really don't. Uh, even though Wilson Hayes got a victory on Saturday, Benavidez should still get the next title shot. Agreed. It's strange that the UFC isn't willing to keep Misha Serkunov, considering the light heavyweight division is seriously lacking talent. Yeah, uh, I heard a little bit about what happened there. Um, I don't think the book is closed on them just yet. It might be. I can't say, oh, Luke said he's going to sign back with the UFC. I'm not saying that. It's definitely uh, in peril but I don't think it's a finality just yet. Tony Ferguson should probably be training with someone like Ben Askren or Demi and Maya to help him get ready for Habib. Not saying that those guys wouldn't be helpful, but he doesn't need to necessarily. Stipe will probably finish JDS in the rematch by TKO. Ooh. Mm. Man, he's got a lot of miles on him. I'll say true. I will say true, but that one's a tough call, man. That's going to be a great fight. It's a bit strange that investors were willing to buy a sinking ship like World Series of Fighting for $25 million and people bought MySpace, you know. I mean, for maybe maybe you believe that the, the $25 million price tag is high, but people will buy any kind of flagging asset under the belief that they can turn it around. That's not in any way surprising in, in that sense. Maybe you think $25 million is too high, but... Uh, even though Luke Thomas dislikes the New England Patriots, at least he likes the New England accent. I mean, who doesn't think that's a sexy accent on a lady, right? Uh, all right. Holly Holmes losing record and what's next for her? Good question. After three straight losses for Holly Holm, isn't the only logical next step to give her a tune-up with a lesser opponent? Yes. She faced tough competition in her fights with Misha and Valentina and arguably won her fight against Jermaine Duran to me for the featherweight championship. Arguably, sure. I'm afraid that the UFC will, quote, need to use Holm as a main event fighter to keep their schedule and put her in against someone like Juliana Pena, which I believe would be a huge mistake. The only possible scenario where Holly shouldn't take a tune-up fight is if she is able to have a rematch for the 145-pound championship. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject. Yeah. Now, I've had a lot of people object to this because they've never – because the, the, we, need, we need another term other than tune-up fight because there really are no tune-up fights as they're properly understood. A tune-up fight is where, like, they'll literally get somebody like a Juan Manuel Marquez and they'll get a club fighter against him, right? I mean, someone who's woefully um, – or, you know, massive distance between them in terms of the quality of opposition in a sport where upsets are less frequent. So, like, they really hedge their bets – in those particular cases. So what happens in the UFC, it's it's a riskier proposition and there's no two ways about it. But, I mean, there's, there's there can be examples where it's a little bit different. Like, you know, uh, Habib versus Horcher. You know, that was you know, a guy coming on late notice who was badly outside of his depth. In cases like that, it, it works in that sense. But um, but I, 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 I do believe that, like, you've lost three in a row now. You got finished once. Granted, it was semi-miraculous, but you got finished. 
you got outclassed against Shevchenko. And this one, you know, was close. Um, obviously, if you have it for Duran to me, I wouldn't really argue with it at all. I think that's a totally fine way to look at it. Maybe even the better version, to be honest. Um, so to me, it's that she lost via decision is not in any way kind of scandalous, but it was at least competitive to some capacity, in some capacity, I should say. Um, but for me, at this point, if you're looking back, you need, like, she just got pushed a little too quickly. Like, the you know, Raquel Pennington has turned out to be a very great fighter. That fight itself wasn't all that great. Um, you know, you look at something like the Marion Renault fight where she won because of a great style advantage. Um, you know, skill differential in that sense, too. But just, like, look at her takedowns. You know, look at Holly Holmes' takedowns. They just, I mean, they're, for this level... I'm not saying if she went to the regional circuit, it would be this way. But for this level, they're a little rudimentary, you know? They're very, very, very underdeveloped. Now, her striking, obviously, is great. And everyone was like, she got countered the whole fight. She did not get countered the whole fight. She got countered badly early and was able to make adjustments. And by the end, she got countered a little bit. Yes, enough to lose the fight, certainly. But she didn't get countered massively towards the end of that fight. She was able to make some adjustments, and I think... That's an example of somebody who can, you know, we've talked about it before. The guy or the lady who can make adjustments in the round and in between rounds, more often than not, they're going to be the kind of guy who, or lady who can get it done. And Duran to me made her own adjustments too, but just for now, we're talking about um, Holly Holm. She just needs work. She needs time to get better, and she's 35, and I realize it's not on her side, but if she can be competitive for a couple more years, she can easily, easily get back to a title fight You've already got someone who has a bit of a built-in name, and I, everyone keeps objecting to the idea of giving somebody, giving her somebody that's way uh, beneath her. And I'm wondering, well, she just lost three times in a row, so tell me what sense it makes to give her somebody you think is of tantamount value, because that's not working. It's clearly not working. Um, and if you want to get the maximum amount out of her, give her time in training camps to work on new things, in her striking, how much can she reasonably add? Probably not a lot, but in the rest of her game, she can add a whole lot. There's no reason why, with a little bit of work, um, a little bit more work, she couldn't be able to take Durand and me down. Who knows what she can do down there? You know, uh, uh, again, time's not necessarily on her side, but it's you know, if she she looks to be in tremendous physical condition, and I really fundamentally believe if they gave her someone even in the top 15. You can put it as a co-main event on something, as a UFC on Fox card. You can do what, whatever. A fight night card, you can make it a co-main event even. you know. Just, but, but, but do her one solid, one time. Quit stepping over dollars to pick up quarters, man. I don't know what this idea is. Well, what, what, about, the, what about the money it will cost? What about the money it will cost if she loses again in a, in a headlining fight? When, if you give her just a little bit of time, maybe she can actually turn a corner and some of the rest of her game to round it out and to make these fights a little bit more competitive and use somebody of uh, significant popularity value when you desperately need it, right? Or she doesn't, and then you you just gave her your one um, gimme fight, and uh, and you say, you know what, we gave you a chance, you didn't turn the corner, and you just move on from her. That's fine, too. Uh, she has to Ultimately, she has to earn it, but I just don't understand, right? Everyone's like, what would happen if Ronda Rousey got a tune-up fight? I mean... You know, what would it cost? Look what it costed her career because they put her right back in there. I mean, maybe she wanted it too, right? We don't really even know. But I'm just pointing out that, like, everyone keeps talking about, oh, what about the dramatic costs of doing a tune-up fight? Yeah, you keep telling me that. Look at the dramatic costs of not doing them because they keep 
biting everyone in the rear. So I think it's at least worth taking some of these things um, a little bit more seriously. I thought Jacare against Boach did it achieve a whole lot. Not necessarily, but he stayed active. He got paid. Um, he looked good doing it. It was the, you know, in terms of like uh, applause-worthy action, it was basically the only thing on that card. So, yes, we got to be sparing with them. And no, they're not exactly tune-up fights because they don't really mean what tune-up fights have historically meant. But giving somebody of significant popularity value who also is of high technical value uh, or high technical ability the chance to round out and bounce back from losses. You know, you can't hold their hand forever. They got to carry their own weight. But just feeding them to the wolves and driving them further into the wood chipper, you know, if they if they are asking for their own doom, then I guess in the words of Brad Pitt, oblige them. But if they're not, if they're looking for another way, or, or if you can convince them, hey, look, I know what you're asking for. You want to get right back to the top. Fighting the number two guy is not going to get you right back to the top. Find the number 15 guy and then find the number seven or six guy. That'll get you there and you'll get better. You will literally get better as a fighter as a consequence. I just don't understand um, what about this is so controversial unless there is some kind of logistical challenge that I'm not accounting for. Uh, the Misha Sukunov situation, Sukunov, however you want to pronounce it. Look, what are your thoughts on the UFC opting to not resign him? I don't think it's a done deal yet, as I understand it. He's 4-0 inside the octagon with each fight ending via finish, yet the UFC is not resigning him because he, quote, flaked out on the deal, sort of. Uh, how big a mistake is the UFC making here? Do you think they'll reconsider? If not, what are the chances he doesn't wind up on Bellator? Not saying he won't wind up on Bellator. It, he, he may actually end up there. Uh, I think it's certainly precarious as I speak to you today. From my understanding of what happened, um, Huh, how do I explain this? With um, this is a tough one. This is a hard one to explain exactly. Um, it first of all, like I said, it's not a done deal, even though they're like, Oh, I'm not interested, mm, they're interested, they're not interested in, in how he and his team uh handled certain things. I don't think they were wrong for it, I think they were a little bit um. I think they made some mistakes in how they initially handled some of the early stage negotiations. Uh, and then I think they wanted, I don't think they handled the situation appropriately at its earliest stage. And when they wanted things differently down the line, they didn't put themselves in a position to get it. And so as a consequence, the UFC was like, well, no. Um, that's the most I can really say about it. Um, but I don't think it's a irreconcilable difference. Could be, not necessarily a given. I think if Sirkinov wants to go to Bellator, I suspect they'd be happy to have him um, because, man, what an exciting addition to that division it would be, especially as Ryan Bader is all but certain to go over there. I mean, this would be tremendous, right? Um, but it's not totally done yet. Not totally done. The question is basically, what is his management going to do? Are they going to um, continue to push for the changes they want or not? And I guess we'll figure that out by which way he goes. 
but it's not because like if you're the UFC, you're people are like, how can you not want to resign? I'm like, this guy's 4-0. Look what he's doing, breaking people's jaws. And he's got small man jujitsu and he looks like a physical freak. And this division kind of sucks. And this guy's awesome. And he's Canadian and the whole bit. My understanding is the UFC is well aware of this. What, as I understand, the, the objection is how the negotiations have gone from the UFC's position on the management side. Like they don't like what they've done. Um, that's about all I can really say. Uh, Holm versus Cyborg. Look, I was thinking this is the fight to make because Holm is 34. She is not getting any younger. It is a pretty big fight. Could possibly do co-man at UFC 212. Y'all just want to, I mean, get in that wood, Chipper Holly. Get in there. No, terrible fight. What are the thoughts? Dude, after I watched that fight on UFC 208, did anybody, did anybody look at that and think, man, huh, these two ladies are going to give Cyborg a run for their money. <laughs> I don't think anybody thought that. I thought I, my reaction was Jesus. If Cyborg can't beat them standing, and I think she can, she's going to take these two to the ground after giving them both frequent flyer miles and either pound them into obliteration or just snatch up a neck or a limb. Uh, they don't. They, I don't think they hold a candle to her. They don't have a prayer. Now, if Cyborg stands with them, I, su I suppose it could be reasonably competitive. For a time, you never know, you know. Uh, certainly, uh, Yorina Bars, um, you know, was able to do something in kickboxing, which, of course, is a very different scenario, but you get the idea. Um, may maybe on that account, they would hold their own, but if Cyborg just wanted to take it to the ground, she would smash them. I don't think it's at all a good idea to give Holly Holm that kind of a fight. Uh, what is next for Robbie Lawler? You know what? I think we need to consider something. Um, uh, we talked a little bit about this. I wonder if it, I can't remember. I'm losing track on whether it was this podcast or the Monday Morning Analyst, but I think it was this one where we discussed, you know, after that fight, which was what January of 2016. Um, those guys didn't appear to be ever the same. Certainly, Condit wasn't. Condit was never the same, right? Uh, he just got crushed and then we saw what happened to robbie lawler in the tyron woodley fight didn't look like himself at all and you want to say well how much of that's tyron woodley probably some you know tyron woodley had a great combo and it worked and they prepped and obviously we know he hits hard and he i thought made a strong account of himself in the wonder boy fight whether you thought he won or lost it he certainly didn't look bad right um i still think there's an open question of what happened to those two i mean teddy atlas is sort of famous for saying it doesn't matter what happens in any fight Fighters always leave a piece of themselves in the ring, or in this case, the cage, um, afterwards. And I think that's true. The question is, how true? Uh, I think the idea that Robbie Lawler is just going to bounce back to the guy he was entering the Roy McDonald fight, I mean, I can't rule that out, but mm, I really wonder if that fight was a bit of a turning point for those guys. Uh, I'm not saying they can't win at an elite level again, but I think the damage they suffered in that one will be not merely lasting, but impossible to avoid or notice for the rest of their career. I just, I mean, they, you just don't see wars like that. And there's a reason why you don't want to be in wars like that, because it can do that to you. Both of those guys not only lost after that fight, but looked bad. Uh, now Lawler's taking more time off, but kind of took a lot of time off too, you know? So I don't know. 
who would I like to see him against? I mean, it's the same question we have with Nick Diaz. Shit. Who would who? What fight would Robbie Lawler would suck at the top top level? You know, people like Lorenz Larkin. Yeah, sure. Nick Diaz fight. Sign me up. Another Carlos Condit fight. Who wouldn't want to see it? Right. Don Cerrone. Sure. I mean, these are these are easy calls. These any one of those would be tremendous uh, if what we think we know about Robbie Lawler is true. But I guess what I'm wondering is, or at least expressing some measure of skepticism is, do I really think he came out of that unscathed? Maybe. Maybe can't rule it out, but I would have some concerns if I were you. I I just don't see how you can walk out of that and be like, I feel like I did two years ago. Mm, I don't know about that. Habib Nurmagomedov, Ben Askren, or Demi and Maya. Those three fighters being universally recognized as the best grapplers in MMA, in your opinion. Who is the best one? And if weight wasn't an issue, who do you think will win if they fought each other? out in an MMA fight. I need to put Jacare in that conversation too. Um, but probably for my money, uh, at least of the three you listed, Nurmagomedov, Askren, and Maya, I'm going to pick Maya. And the reason why is because I think he can work better from top and bottom. I think he's a much more significant uh, submission threat. And uh, he's a much more significant threat in part because he puts himself in better situations. He's better at ca- at causing sweeps. Uh, he's better at working to the back. Like his game is so simple, but it's like it's like Italian cooking. If you know anything about Italian cooking, they don't have a ton of ingredients, but what they have is uh, the best ingredients. Like if they use tomatoes. They don't just have donk tomatoes you go buy at your local Piggly Wiggly. Like they get really really nice, like the super delicious tomatoes, and they cook it in the most precise ways. Like if you're not going to have a lot of ingredients when you cook, you have to make sure you are applying the technique perfectly. And that's sort of what his approach to the game is. Now he has a wide repertoire. Of course, I just mean his game is go in there and take you down. If I can't take you down, I will sweep you down. Right. And I'm going to go for the back and I'm going to go for the back because this is such a dominant position. I've got such a, I've got such an advantage. Even if I, even if our jujitsu was equal and I started on your back, I have such an advantage here. But the jiu-jitsu is not equal. There's a massive gap between him and, frankly, everybody else in that division. Maybe not Jacare if he went back up to middleweight, but you get the idea. Just about everybody else, there'd be a significant gap in skill. And so why not just go there? Why, why waste time? Why waste time at all? Uh, it's such a, it's such a um, unique and interesting approach, but it can only be pulled off by somebody who has the ability and wherewithal to make that kind of thing happen. Hang on, i got to adjust my microphone um so for me i'm gonna go ham but habib and askren to me are very very similar very similar both um have a huge range of takedowns they have unique setups for those takedowns they like to ride on top they prefer ground and pound and they prefer just riding and wearing and and pulling into you like there's just a comfort zone in that i think habib's probably got a little bit more lethal um, ground and pound, I think uh, Ben has slightly more unique entries into the takedowns. They're not identical, of course. But uh, And Habib, of course, submitted in his last one, uh, Michael Johnson. So maybe he's a bit more of a submission threat as well. But I guess we'll have to see that play out over the course of other fighters. To me, like Tony Ferguson is a bigger submission threat than Habib, right? Um, but what makes Habib distinct, and I've talked about this before, is it's one thing to say, oh, I'm going to shoot in on a double. I'm going to reach my hands out, 
and you're going to pull my hands off of your legs. You're going to rip it up. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you do that. I'm going to let you do at least on one side. So that way I can go knee tap and get you over that way. George St. Pierre did that to Tiago Alves at UFC 100 a couple of times and running him in a circle and then knee tap off, off a double. Tiago pulled the underhook up. George let him and went over. That's one thing. That's called chain wrestling. But Habib is very different. Habib will go for a double. You'll pull up on an underhook and then he'll switch to a Harai Goshi. I don't know. that. In other words, we're not talking about a congruent family of takedowns. We're talking two different universes, leg and hip attacks versus trips and throws, and he can do it on a dime. I'm sorry. There is nobody else in MMA who can do that. Nobody, at least not with the same skill level that he can do it. He can do it so quickly. Guys, they just, they, you see this look of terror on them because they don't, they're getting attacked in ways they've literally never felt from a sparring partner. Oh, if I can't get the double, I'll switch to the single. If I can't get the single, I'll go for the, the high crotch. If I can't get the high crotch, maybe I'll go for double underhooks and trips. We're talking about a relatively congruent family of takedowns. That is not what he does. He can switch between wildly diverse takedowns on a dime. That, to me, is insane. Miles Jury update. Do you have any updates on when Miles Jury will fight again? Uh, yes, I've heard a lot about this, actually. Uh, have you talked to him? No, not yet. Well, he is hard to get a hold of. But uh, I am hearing April. I am hearing April. Uh, against an opponent who I think you guys will like very much if it winds up happening. So, uh, RDA at welterweight. Obi Covington has called out RDA for a welterweight fight. Do you think this is a good first fight for RDA at welterweight? How do you see this fight going? Man, that's a tough fight for him. And if you do not think this is a good first fight, who do you think you'd like to see him matched against? Colby Covington's a tough one, and I think Colby Covington likes it because Dos Anjos has good um, takedowns. He has good wrestling. I don't, I don't think anyone could say he has bad wrestling. But Covington is a limited fighter. He's not, he's not as well-rounded, let's say, as Dos Anjos. But he's a big welterweight who's got excellent takedowns, really strong top control, um, great transitions, can work off the back, good submissions, good ground and pound, good recovery, good scrambling. It would just be a really tough fight for him. It'd be a really tough fight for him. This is why it's like there needs to be like a 165 division or a 163 or whatever the case because um, Dos Anjos cuts way too much weight to get to 155, but... 170, man. I mean, 170, he's fighting guys that are... John Fitch came in studio. John Fitch is huge. Huge. Actually came in studio with Ben Askren. He was notably bigger than Ben. You know, Ben, to me, looks like a more natural welterweight. Um, and I'm not saying that Ben's not strong or stronger than John. I don't know how they match up physically. But I was shocked at how big uh, John Fitch was. He's a large, large person. Dosanjo's having to go against guys like that. I don't know, man. That seems like an awfully tall order. And when they're like really good at one thing that he's like good at, but not amazing at. Mm. Is Holly's manager a donk? I don't think so, but hi, Luke. I was reading an interview with Holly's manager, Lenny. I think it's Frezquez. Uh, whatever. And he said the only fight Holly will take next is a shot title shot at bantamweight or featherweight. What are your opinions on this guy? Is he a good manager or a donk? He must not see the Holly is not Nick Diaz. 
Uh, let me pull up the quotes then. The quotes then. <clears throat> so I'd be curious to see this. Uh, let's see. Fresquez, yes. I don't know if we want to fight in the cheater division. We've got one girl who takes drugs and one who doesn't follow the rules. <laughs> the cheater division, that's funny. Uh, we've prepared for every aspect of that fight except for cheating. <clears throat> I'm going to talk to Dana this week and work it out. Uh, whatever title comes up first, that's the one we'll do, Fresquez said. She'll knock out Jermaine within three rounds. Well, yeah, I don't know about that. Um, now, if there's a different equation here, which is that maybe she wants to have kids and a family, and she's just looking for one more big payday or something, uh, fine. Maybe that's, then, you know, go take a title fight, right? Go risk it. But if you're looking for a few more years of this, maybe she's not, then I think taking some kind of a tune-up is more than warranted in this particular scenario. Uh, T-shirts, where are they? They are paid for. They have been. I paid for them last week, if not the week before that. So they said once you pay for them, and so if I front the money, they print them, and then, uh, I mean, I'm not going to keep the money, I'm just going to break even. What I pay out, I get back. All the profits will go to charity. Um, they should be done in, I don't know, a week or two, something like that, but they're, they're, they're in the printing press. I know you don't believe me. You don't have to. But when they're up for sale, you can say, thank you, Luke. And you can purchase them if you're so inclined. Uh, okay. I think I mentioned this last time, if I haven't already. They're going to be at MMA Warehouse. MMA Warehouse is going to sell them. So when that link is up, you can go there. I believe it's got global shipping. So people would ask me, hey, if I'm in Norway, if I'm in Colombia, if I'm in Canada, can I get it shipped? I believe you can. So there you go. And by the way, I'm going to do like, you know, I only purchased a limited amount. So once these are all out, if these sell out, and I hope that they do, I think they will. But once this batch sells out, I'll make more in the future. So, but I'm using this as like a test run to see, you know, what kind of demand is out there. But um, I appreciate everyone's patience. And I know Jeremy Botter is a unusual hater in this regard. But um, they are, I mean, I've done everything I can. The designs have been approved. I've paid for them. The only thing is just to make them and then put the link up on the site and then let you guys know about it. So we're almost there. Uh, okay. Barboza versus Dariush. Hi, Luke. How do you see this fight going? Can you do a quick breakdown? That's going to be an interesting one. It's going to be the same thing it always is against Barboza. To what extent can you get him backing up? Um, to what extent can you headhunt with him? To what extent can you mix it up uh, by pressing him against the fence or getting any kind of a takedown or some kind of a back attack from a scramble? I think that's what Dariush is going to be doing. He's going to be trying to get in his face um, because if you give that guy any distance, you sort of all know what's going to happen. Barboza is one of those guys where he's extraordinarily deadly, but you, and it's easier said than done, believe me. Uh, but you basically know what you have to do. You have to back him up. You have to get right in his face inside boxing range, if not even tighter. To the extent you can get it to the ground, you have to do that. To the extent you can get him to clinch up, you have to do that. To the extent you can flatten it, you have to just take away space from him. Any kind of space, he can just explode out of something. He can explode into something. Um, he can whip his body to whatever he needs to do. So that's really the key, it seems to me. You got to get up in his grill. Um, who do you see winning? 
tough one. Dariush is the more well-rounded fighter. Probably I'll give it to Dariush. I also think he's actually pretty big for that weight class and has a great chin. Um, so I'd probably give it to Dariush, but Barboza is, you know, they don't come much tougher than him. The 209's favorite sons. When will the Diaz brothers be back? Y'all keep asking me, and we don't know. Um, no one knows, man. I even was asking when I was at 208, I was asking other journalists, like, have you heard anything? Have you heard anything? And everyone's like, no, no one has a, no one has a effing clue. Um, the guys have turned down a number of fights, turned down big purses, turned down literal title shots. I, I, I mean, I, I don't think they're going to remain on the sidelines forever. I, I think you'll see each of them in 2017. I fundamentally believe that, but against who and when it's, you know, they know, I mean, these guys are not stupid, man. They know they're looking at that calendar and they're saying, you got nobody. You got nobody who's going to be able to fill out that roster to, to headline cards. You got nobody. So we're going to wait until our maximum peak value, and then we'll start to negotiate. They're not idiots, man. They're just not. Um, I know it must be frustrating for all of you guys. Trust me, it's frustrating for me too. I feel it. I'm with you. But that's the game they're in. They're just going to collect maximum checks at peak value in a down market. Um, you know, smart. Aldo versus Holloway. Hey, Luke, how do you see this fight going? Can you do a quick breakdown? Who do you see winning? Man, that's what I have to think more about because it's such a tough fight. Um, I think... What I'm looking from Holloway is the big question is to what extent could he take away the take or the uh, leg kicks? Now Edgar was in part able to somewhat get rid of him, but even then not really. But by pressing forward and sort of threatening the takedown, but once Aldo knew the takedown was never going to happen, um, they opened up more. But you'll recall, like in the first two rounds, leg kicks were not a huge. I mean, he landed them, but they weren't a huge, huge part of his arsenal. Question is going to be to what extent again can uh, can Holloway get Aldo backing up? To what extent can he threaten or secure the takedown? I don't I don't see him getting. I mean, I, maybe he can get a takedown. I don't see him securing it. Right, two different things, two different skills, frankly. Um, and to what extent can he pressure him into movement such that he wears Aldo down? Because I can see him losing like. A fresh Aldo versus a fresh Holloway. Boy, that's a tough fight for a Holloway. But a reasonably fresh Holloway, round four, round four and five, versus a potentially, at that point, fatigued Aldo. That's a different scenario. That's a very different scenario. So to me, the question is going to be like, what can Holloway do to deplete the gas tank through movement not merely his own, but getting Aldo to move. Aldo likes early to be very economical with his movement. If you notice that, like he'll make big movements if he has to, when he is, you know, bobbing out of the way um, and getting off the center line. And when, you know, when when we talked about this Monday morning analyst, what Edgar would do is he would try to fade into this power hand lane, and Aldo would duck around and then turn. Not duck, but bob and turn. Those are big movements, right? I mean, it's not a tiny little. It's not. It's not one of those. So um, he's got to get him moving. He's got to get him reacting. He's got to get him fighting off underhooks and avoiding clinches. And early on, he's going to be great at that. But over time, what is he going to be able to do? So 
I think that is really going to be a key question here because who has the better gas tank? Max Holloway. Who's got more ways to win even? Probably Max Holloway. It's just that Aldo is so explosive on the feet and um, his, his his ability to maneuver his hips to get in and out of scrambles is ridiculous. So to me, you've got you to gotta lean on that guy uh, and that's easier said than done. So I think I probably favor Aldo, but I would like to be wrong because I actually think it'd be better for the division if Holloway won. Not that I'm cheering for Aldo's demise or something. I just mean, if you think about like what would be interesting at featherweight would be to have a legitimate, you know, McGregor's gone, right? You go, you can think he's the best featherweight in the world, and maybe he is, but he's not. I mean, he's not even defending his lightweight title, so forget about that. But featherweight, he's gone. So like a new featherweight king, right? I mean, it's been McGregor and Aldo. We've been talking about the last couple of years, and for Aldo, even longer than that. Something to shake up the division to me would be really, really great. Um, a new rivalry, even uh, an Aldo Holloway rivalry would be, uh, would be awesome. Um, so I guess we'll have to see, but this is a very rudimentary, uh, assessment. Like as we get closer and we look sort of at the specific tactics that they employ, we can make a, we can make a better, uh, assessment. UFC 212 is the only pay-per-view card in Brazil this year. Can you tell us what fighters and fights you think we'll see on that card? Do you think Cyborg will be on this card? So it's the June card, right? Cyborg, maybe. Um, Anderson, I think if they do Anderson Bisping, they might do it there. This, they're doing Aldo Holloway there, right? And I guess they might do, I guess they're going to do Andrade and Jacek in Dallas. So that's out. Um, so they might do Anderson versus Bisping there. Lineker might be on this card, potentially. Jacare, he could as well. Um, Obviously, JDS won't be there. They might have a Verdum fight on that card. I mean, it's hard to say exactly what they might and might not do based on the availabilities, but the one I'm thinking of is I thought they were going to do Andrade on that card. Um, but if they don't, I I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility they'd do Michael Bisping versus Anderson Silva on that card. Or I don't know if they'll put GSP versus Silva on that card. That seems a little bit much, but even then I wouldn't rule that out. I'm just saying Anderson and some kind of big fight on that card seems very, very possible. Very possible. Because they need that to do really well at the gate. He's a huge star there. Um, obviously, North American fans know him really well, too. So I don't see how you do that card in Brazil without him, quite frankly. Lawler versus Masvidal. I would probably give that to Masvidal at this point. I just, I mean, the way he's fighting, pressuring Lawler, I think he can do a lot. Accurate striking. I don't know if Lawler's the same anymore. Same question over and over again. Here's a good question. Hi, Luke. I feel like I'm one of the last MMA fans who still really likes Dana, but his comments about them, quote, not letting it go to the judges is one of the most ridiculous things in the whole uh, of MMA. Anderson Silva in the exact same fight let it go to the judges and he won. Is this just Dana being Dana and encouraging fighters to have exciting fights whilst behind the scenes actually working on some way to resolve bad decisions? Or do you think he generally believes in the mantra? I mean, look, just think about it logically here for a second, right? They have an incentive to say that. One, because I think they believe the problems of judging is likely intractable. But more than that, if you encourage your fighters to never leave in the hands of the judges, you probably, to some extent, encourage them to take risks uh, and to fight 
more aggressively to produce some kind of resolution so as not to leave it to the judges. So like that's good for their product. Like they have a natural incentive to say that. And I think it's also, you know, look, generally it's a call to action. Like even if, even if they, I mean, the incentive part is hard to remove from the conversation, but I also think they're just naturally saying, Hey, look guys, um, you know, this as well as we do, like you leave it to the judges. This is a, becomes a very sketchy proposition about whether you're going to win or you're going to lose. It's in your interest too, to, if you can, um, not, not enable them to make that call. But like, if, if the point is to never leave in the hands of the judges, why are they there? Like their whole purpose is to adjudicate disputes who won. They're there to answer. Um, so it, I mean, on, on the one hand, there's this natural incentive they have. On the other hand, it's not the worst advice in the world, but on the other hand, if they're, if we don't want to give it to them, then why do we give it to them? Like in the end, saying something like don't leave in the hands of the judges is like, don't do something that is basically impossible to avoid. It's not real advice. Uh, in the end, it's not real. The, the, the answer is, um, what can we do for judging and officiating generally to make these fights uh, better, to make the results speak to more, um, you know, real world observation. And I just feel like after 208, uh, we, we are so far apart from that. It's, it barely deserves comment. Um, I did a huge thing on it on the Monday morning analyst. I really encourage you to go watch. Um, I just basically believe that from now on, unless there is something totally egregious, I mean, totally egregious, someone gets knocked down three times in a round, cut, mounted, back taken, and that person somehow wins the round 10-9. Short of that, uh, it's hard to know. It's hard to even argue that somebody is wrong. And I won't go through the whole thing anymore because there's a, there's a piece on my own YouTube channel you can see I did about it. The Monday Morning Analyst covers it. Um, but the long story short is we've talked about people bringing in their own inherent biases, not like angry biases, but their own way in which they view the world, their own spatial position, um, and their own uh, ability to make sense of what they've seen in a very quick succession with limited technological aid. It is shocking that we don't have more disputes. It is shocking we don't have more disputes. And all the disputes we do have, like, legitimately, if I had sat in one of those judges' chairs and I had seen the fight from their perspective, now I can't necessarily borrow their their views about what takedowns mean and what top control means and, and what shots they consider more damaging than others and how they view the value of leg kicks. I, I can't answer that. But I can say, even with just that spatial position, I'm going to see some things and I'm going to miss some things. We talked about the Monday Morning Analyst. Those two check right hooks that Anderson Silva threw, they were right hooks or left hooks? They were right hooks. They looked and sound like they landed on the broadcast. And then when you watch from the overhead cam, they both missed. They both, neither of them landed. Um, and so it just sort of tells you that like, maybe somebody in that position did in fact think that's what they saw. Like what they saw is like, is it such a loaded term? What did you see? What you saw is not the truth necessarily. It's just what you saw. It's what you saw with your limited capacity to, um, you know, whatever your vision enables you to see and whatever it tells your mind. Oh, I heard a sound. It looked like he landed on that right. Man, that looked like a big impactful shot. It had Derek Brunson running. And then you look at the overhead camp, it didn't land at all. Nothing. The first one hit nothing but air. Um, 
The second one was just blocked right on the hand, like here, even away from his chin. Um, but if what you saw in your mind is those two landing, Derek Brunson wobbling a couple times, even though he only got shoved, you'll go back and you'll say, hey, look, he landed those, for example, he landed those two right hooks. He even had him wobbled a couple of times. This is clearly around for Anderson Silva because that is what you saw. But you weren't able to verify that independently. You didn't have a chance to go back and review whether or not those decisions were made. It's like turning in writing um, that's just a first draft. These are just the first draft of decisions. Think about that. Like, what is the key to successful writing? Any good writer will tell you this. It's editing. Editing is the key. Shaving, trimming, reshaping, finding clarity, trying to use words parsimoniously, the whole bit. Those guys are literally turning in their rough draft every time. And we wonder why we get questionable decisions or decisions that don't match our perspective because we also have our own spatial, for example. And again, all the other biases, including the spatial one. I was watching on a monitor. Here's what I saw. I was watching from the overhead cam. Here's what I saw. Like we're, Our entire catalog of MMA decisions is a giant catalog of everyone's rough draft. That is a terrible way to make a decision. It's it's legitimately terrible. And I don't know exactly what all the answers are. I've got a few suggestions. You've probably got some as well. Some of it has to do with the scoring criteria. Maybe some of it doesn't have to do with the scoring criteria. Maybe we meaningfully can't really add a whole lot to that to gain some clarity. But then you go back and you say, well, okay, these fighters have no ability to get review. That's the other part about this I don't understand. You know what you're turning in. Oh, these judges are experienced. So what? So they're experienced, so now they're infallible? No, they're human beings. They're going to get this wrong a lot, a lot. Even with expertise, they're going to get it wrong a lot. Expertise, we don't want to live in one of these worlds where we like discount the value of expertise. Expertise absolutely does matter. It's one of the true safeguards against failure we have in this world, but even the expertise itself is no guarantee. And when you're turning in rough draft after rough draft after rough draft, and then you don't have the ability after the fact to go, look at this, man. And then you might say, well, that would create a backlog of um, of uh, fighters being like, hey, I thought I won that one. All right. Uh, there would have to be some kind of you know system in place to handle the, the, the load of cases. But I'm just saying, if there's video evidence after the fact that clearly shows a very different perspective, and I'm just, I'm not, even if you don't think the Silva Brunson one is, I'm sure you can think of another case where there, there was, you've got a problem. You got a serious, serious problem. So, like, to me, it's like, how, how do we fix judging? Is it a different scoring criteria? I, yes, we should explore those options. But just think about what we're doing. We're taking middle aged, <laughs> To elderly people, literally, with limited, and I do mean limited, use of technology, with no ability to review their decision, who can bring in their own inherent biases in terms of martial arts, about what they see and what they don't see and what they count and what they don't count. We give them a limited spatial position, and I've seen them collect the scorecards at the end of a fight. They get it almost at the end of the round. Sometimes they get it, you know, at the end or, the, you know, in that minute in between, they'll get it at the very end of that. But okay, you've basically got less than 60 seconds to make a call on that. 
based on no technological review and everything else I've already mentioned. That is insane. That is insane. What a totally botched system by which to adjudicate dispute. Who won? X or Y? And the truth is, fixing even that terrible system is not easy. But it has to get better. It has to get better either by creating safeguards for review, by iterating uh, the criteria itself, by adding additional judges, by finding different mechanisms by which to employ technological aids. All of these things need to be continued to explored and pushed. And we need to lean, frankly, I'm sorry, I don't mean to do this to him, but I don't know who else to lean on, but the UFC, because they have some ability to at least experiment with some of these things. Or just say, you know what, controversy rules, and guys are just going to get badly affected, and we don't really care. That's another way to go about it, too. You know, hey, you're right. These the system is terrible. These guys have no real recourse. Uh, it has profound impacts for their career and their legacy. But you know what? Gold position. So you know, people are always like, don't leave in the hands of the judges. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's what they, what, they, what they mean, like. You know, there's only so much we're prepared to do about this. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is in that sense. But if you just think logically about how we judge things, uh, you know, it's almost like a memory test. Like, we're going to show you a series of slides for the next five minutes. Tell us which one you saw more of at the end. Oh, I, I mean, one of the big revelations in the last 20 years of law has been uh, uh, how unreliable eyewitness testimony is. Eyewitnesses will say, hey, I saw X, Y, and Z, and then they'll find actual footage of it, and these people will pass lie detector tests, and they will swear on their lives, that's what I saw, because that is what they saw, right? What they saw. And then video evidence shows it's not that case at all, or at least they only got half of it correct or something other than that. Like the, 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 the reliability of eyewitness testimony is not great, and that's what judging is eyewitness testimony from professional witnesses. All right. Holly's shushing. I never understood the sound that some kickboxers make when they throw. In cases like Buakau or Tyrone Spong, I used to think the sound that they are trying to make is so is to intimidate, excuse me, their opponents. But in the case of Holly, it looks like she might be telegraphing her strikes and helping her opponent to time the counter when she makes the sound at the beginning of the blitz. Do you agree? Someone wrote, wrote this long thing about how it could be some other ones. Typically, uh, what they teach you, I, I can't speak for her. It might be a rhythm thing. It might be a comfort, mental comfort thing. It might be a way to distract. But always remember, like, depending on what kind of exercise you're doing, the way in which you breathe matters. Now, I'm not in any way an expert runner, but some kind of there's a, there's a there's a right way and a wrong way to breathe through running. Um, in powerlifting, it's a lot of holding your breath, right? You have to. Oh well, there's a different way you breathe through your tongue. Um, this is a different method, which we won't get into. But you hold and you expand the obliques and the muscles in your abdomen out to brace the abdominal wall against your against your belt. Let's say. And you hold it to the top of a repetition, and then you know, depending on what exercise it is, you might let it out. But there's a lot of breath holding. Bodybuilding, you'll actually breathe a little bit through the exercises. Um, 
in jujitsu, you have to be very conscious about breathing through those things. Because if you're, you know, I'm going to get Toriando pass, I'm going to grab your pants and I'm going to push it to the side and I'm going to come around. If you, you know, you force the pants around, your breathing will be messed up. So in striking, they always tell you to breathe out as you throw a strike. So it's, that's why you hear boxers a lot. They're breathing out as they throw a strike and they're breathing in sort of like either on the turn or however they've managed to to do that um beyond that i'm not exactly sure what she's doing but just always remember that whenever you throw a strike a lot of guys that's why donks and street fights get tired because they hold their breath when they throw punches and then they're tied after like 60 seconds that's why power lifters for example take literally rest five to ten minutes between sets sometimes because it's exhausting to hold your breath and exert something physically right uh, Anderson Silva, UFC 212. Yeah, who would I like to see him fight up a fight against? Well, if they wanted to do a mega fight, I don't think they would. But I wouldn't mind seeing the GSP fight at this point for that for them to. Um, let me just say this. I have... They better not do that Michael Bisping GSP fight. They better not. I have a tremendous amount of respect for George St. Pierre. First ballot Hall of Famer, Mount Rushmore of MMA. Maybe one of the greatest fighters, if not the greatest fighter ever. Certainly in the conversation. We all know this. We're talking about one of the greatest. And Michael Bisping, man. I mean, you can't say enough good things about Michael Bisping. A guy who is a maybe the best test case for the value of perseverance. Right, We're talking about a guy who just kept swinging the axe through thick and through thin, and achieved something almost no fighter can. I mean, you know, the St. Pierre's of the world can, but that's about it, right? And I'm not saying this brings to the same level as St. Pierre. I'm just saying, you know, reaching that championship status and you know, being a, uh, an icon for for UK MMA and, and that kind of thing. I mean, it's such of such tremendous admiration for both guys that if they make it a GSP Bisping fight is a total sham. It is a ridiculous fight that should never happen. And if it does, that to me is actually quite worrying about the direction of the sport. Um, I'd almost tolerate Anderson. No, I tolerate Anderson versus uh, Bisping. And I hate that fight more uh to the rematch if they make it than the gs gsp one that is that is um that is so ridiculous as to be worrying um you know there's something to be said for maybe it was the bisping fight and that got wme to renegotiate with george and i can appreciate that fact but i would literally rather have george sit on the sidelines than make that fight that fight is a travesty to everything that matters about the architecture of the sport. It is a travesty to the value of putting together a contenders list. It is a it is a imminent threat to the notion of contendership. Period. Hate it. Want nothing to do with it. And I can assure you, if they make it, whether it's two twelve or any other card, I like Michael Bisping. He is uh, he works at SiriusXM. I've got nothing but praise for him. But if they make that fight. Rest assured, I will call it a sham for the entirety of the pre-buildup and after the fact, because that is what it is. 
And I understand this might be one of Michael's last fights and he wants to get a big paycheck, which I am totally sympathetic to in, in a general sense. And if I was in his position, I'd probably want the same thing. It's human nature, but it's okay for him to want those things. And it's okay for us to say, no me gusta. I don't think so. I think this is a very bad idea and I don't want to do it. And, you know, I'm sure WME cares not one F all about what I have to say, but that doesn't mean I don't have a right to say it. And I intend to vociferously because that is a joke of a fight. Mm. All right. Not quite 215. Dominic Cruz, when do you think we'll see Dominic Cruz fight again? Mm, probably the summer. Maybe July-ish. Does Nick Diaz really want to come back? While he was suspended, he kept saying he, all he wanted was big fights. Since his suspension has ended, he's been offered multiple fights, even a welterweight title fight, and so far has turned them all down. What do you think is going on with him? They must not be big enough fights for him. <laughs> Pretty simple to that one, man. He just doesn't think the fight's like, you know, be like, Tyron Woodley's just going to wrestle me the whole time. It's going to suck. No one knows who Tyron Woodley is. It's not a big enough fight. Like, he doesn't want to be, like, here's what's weird about the Diaz brothers. They want to be in fights that are so big that they're the B-side. Right? Like, we're like, man, if you fought Woodley, now Woodley might be the A-side only because he's the champ, but in terms of popularity, Diaz is the A-side, right? In terms of, like, uh, obviously, welterweight achievement, Woodley is. But <laughs> the Diaz brothers want fights so big that they're the B-side. They want someone, like, huge that they can be the second fiddle so they can just get the money. They don't want to give whatever popularity they've achieved. They don't want to give it to someone lesser. They'd rather take from someone bigger. Uh and so when you think about it like that, you're like, who could they fight? Not a lot of guys out there that can fulfill those roles. You know, that's that's where they're at. They they look for fights so big that they get to be the B-side. All right. With that said, let's go to the Twitter machine. You can uh, tweet me at SBN Luke Thomas, and then you can use the hashtag chat rappers, and I will uh, address your questions. Okay, don't the rules say round ends of the ref calls of time? Wouldn't this suggest separation by ref isn't needed? No, it would suggest it. Because if the idea is that the fighters can't hear the bell, ostensibly, you need someone who can physically act in a way so that um, they clearly understand this. What do you think about the whole softening the sport or the whole world? Is it too much? Should we go back to the old good, the old good days? Or is this progress we have made and should continue? I have no idea what that means. Interesting. Um, what do you think is next for Hollywood? We've kind of been over that. What is the strongest comeback in UFC, in your opinion? By comeback, I mean something like coming back after a long break or experiencing something devastating like when Anderson Silva broke his leg. Ooh. Um, well, I was going to say Brock Lesnar at 200, but mm, that doesn't really qualify, I suppose. Um, probably Frank Mir. You guys remember Frank Mir was, if you weren't watching the sport back then, Frank Mir was just like phenom at heavyweight. And um, 
and then gets in a motorcycle accident and breaks his femur. And then, like, the truth about his comeback was it wasn't so triumphant. In fact, it was a disaster. I remember when he lost to, like, Peta Pon- or I think he lost to Peta Pano, and the Dan Christensen fight sucked. And then, uh, what was the one where he was like, um, I'm back. This is the real Frank Mir. And his wife was crying in the stands. I remember this. I remember that he had the hat he had on, but now I can't remember the name of the opponent. Um, who was that? That was a really triumphant moment. Yeah. So yeah, no, sorry. He beat Dan Christensen, but he, it was a terrible fight. He lost to Petapano, lost to Brandon Vera. Oh, it was a hard on fight where he comored him in a minute and 17 seconds. And then, then he went on that run where he beat Brock Lesnar, he beat Noguera, lost to Brock Lesnar, beat Czech Congo, lost to Carwin, beat Mirko, Roy Nelson, beat Noguera again. Uh, that's pretty crazy. And that time, snapped his arm up. That was a wild time. Jesus. Probably that. Probably that. Uh... Best thing in women's MMA that we don't see in men's MMA. I think a certain degree of flexibility. What's your take on Lando Venata's opponent at 209? Oh, they're giving him the big time treatment, right? I forgot exactly who he's fighting. Give me a second. I can barely keep track of all this stuff. Uh, but I remember being like, ooh, that's a good, a good a fight for him. Uh, he is fighting. Oh, David Tamer. Tamer. I know uh, the... Uh, the Europeans believe in him, but I think Lando's probably going to cruise. And I think it's a good fight for him, too. Slow the roll a little bit. I just want to point out that you have more than twice as many viewers as Epic Mealtime live streams. They rarely surpass 1,000. I have no idea what Epic Mealtime is. Who do you like for Lewis Brown? Probably Brown. Hunt Overeem, that's a tougher one. Probably Overeem, but I can see a very strong case for Hunt. It's just all the distraction of suing the employer, you know. What is that going to do to him? JDS Miocic, I'm going to go Miocic on that one. And do you want to see Anderson versus GSP? I wouldn't be opposed to it. Why is DC such a soccer hub? Stats say DC is the top market for Premier League and Champions League views because it's an extraordinarily international city. Everyone is here. Germans, Sudanese, Brits, um, Bolivians, uh, Canadians. Um, you know, you look at the universities here. They have over almost 15% of their population is international, right? So it's a deeply international city. So when the World Cup comes around, all the nationalities throw all these huge parties for like their, their different uh, countries. And it's a grand old time. Everyone gets along. Uh, not many cities in the world like this one. Uh, okay. Thoughts on UFC no longer sending fight tape to coaches and fighters? Yes. So I did some digging on that. It's a good question. My understanding what used to happen was they would get the production team would send the coaches, I guess the coaches who requested it. Um, it would be broadcast footage, but it would become like a zip file. So they would get all different angles and whatever else they wanted and they could fast forward and change and let me see exactly what I was told about this because I actually did some digging into this. Um, it, would be, it would be the production files with broadcast audio.
Yeah, they'd be an available offline source of UFC fights, including tough bouts, Fox cards, recent pay-per-views, to study a variety of platforms and devices. Apparently with Fight Pass, one of the big problems is, you know, uh, if you want Holly's fight, it's not on right now. You have to pay for it. If you want Cowboy's fight, you can't even get it unless you DVR'd it, right? Like you don't, there's just a certain measure of convenience taking things offline and and rewinding it and cutting it up. And and I, you know, look, they, I, I, I think the NFL has a system where if you pay for it, you can get like the coach's film, which is like the overhead film. You ever seen them? If you watch American football, you ever seen those guys on the sidelines flipping through sheets like the quarterbacks? They're looking at sheets. They're looking at screenshots that were faxed down from the offensive or coordinator, defensive coordinator, down to the sidelines, showing them where different guys were on different routes and different positions. If the safety was deep, or you know whatever whatever they were showing them, cover two and the whole nine. Um, and so they can look at it and see what guys are doing, so they can then make adjustments as a consequence. And you can also buy the film. I think you can pay. I mean, it may even be free, but you can definitely buy the film after the fact from the coach's perspective, so you can look. I think providing that kind of information makes the coaches better at what they do i can understand why you know the ufc is like we're not we don't have to help coaches and you're right you don't but if it makes coaches better and it makes fighters better i think it makes sense to do that but i mean i think they can still get what they want it's just much more of a pain in the ass now and it just sort of signals like what is your priority for the ufc you want to you want to inhibit coaches i don't know if that makes a lot of sense uh the Real Madrid starting 11 to play Napoli. Navas, Carvajal, Ramos, Varan, Marcelo, Cruz, Modric, Casemiro, James, Ronaldo, Benzema. Man, Bale has been gone a long time. Um, how bad does Real Madrid lose to Napoli? I don't think they will, but well, I think it's possible. Does St. Pierre, Diaz, too, or either of them versus Lawler interest you? Yeah, sure. What, what interests me is a fairly low threshold. Do you enjoy Bellator's product? Yeah, and I don't like everything about it, uh, but I like a lot about it. Who do you think wins Woodley versus Wonderboy, too? Man, I really don't know. I mean, the first fight being a draw in the way that it was makes the second one hard. It really just basically boils down to who do you think can make more adjustments. And what's interesting about that is Woodley can make more adjustments with his grappling and Wonderboy can make more adjustments with his striking. So where does that leave you? It still leaves you in a pretty similar position. I actually asked, who did I ask? I asked Rory McDonald about this, and I asked uh, about this, and I got different answers both times. I think Rory thinks Woodley will win, and God, who was the other guy I asked? A different middleweight, and they think Thompson will win. So... I haven't I haven't been able to dr drill down on that too much specifically just yet. With the return of GSP imminent, do you think ring rust will affect him as much as his constant with his constant training? Probably not as much, but maybe the moment itself could, you know, um, get to him. I could see that, you know or at least having some rust early or something. It'll be interesting to see. You know, he's one of these guys who likes to be in control, and he's got these thought experiments and these sort of cues he goes by to ready himself and steal him for the for the moment at hand. And I can see if any of those get challenged in some way, um, he could be challenged in some way, right, So in terms of his performance. But I still think he's got enough experience, and to your point, he's been training this whole time enough to get, you know, a victory against a credible uh, opponent in all likelihood. 
cool story. I have a friend that does real estate who filled out some paperwork for Miles Jury a few months ago. All right. If you're the UFC and Lewis wins on Sunday, would you hold off on a fight against Nganu or do it next? I would do it next. With George reaching an agreement to terms with the UFC, does this give Connor more or less negotiating power? I really don't think, given what he's doing with um, Mayweather, it substantively alters it. I think they could dangle a St. Pierre fight in front of him, and maybe that might appease him in the end. Uh, certainly, it gives them somebody who can headline a pay-per-view of note, so that's good. But if what he's doing is a Mayweather or bust campaign, the addition of St. Pierre doesn't necessarily have a, 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 a significant impact on his leveraging power. What are your expectations out of Johnny Hendricks at, well, now he's at middleweight. You put welterweight. Man, fighting Hector Lombard this weekend. Who knows? Man, who knows what to expect out of that guy, huh? It's impossible. It's impossible to say. Uh, on the one hand, I could see it be rejuvenating because he's not cutting so much weight. I mean, he was literally out of his mind at 207. He just didn't, he just didn't look right. He didn't sound right. I mean, he looked physically okay in terms of being in shape, I suppose, but just he was erratic and it was not good, man. It was it was terribly not good. Um Oh, wow. That's crazy. Oh, this is political news, which I won't get into. Um, and Hector Lombard, you know, he's had a bit of a rough run too, so I don't really know. I don't really know what to expect from him. I think it'll be better, um, but he might be overpowered physically. Um, it's not like his gas tank is tremendous either. I'll, I'll be curious to see. Reaction to David Branch signing with the UFC. What is his potential ceiling? Probably higher than it was before. I don't know if he can really contend with the title, given who's at the top of that division at middleweight, but uh, um, he certainly has massively improved since his early stint, and I think he'll be a very welcome and helpful addition to to that division for sure. I am going to Madrid for 10 days through my university. What is one thing I shouldn't miss out on? Ooh, that is a good question. Mm. I would say... Um, let me look up the name of this. I forgot the name of the... Um, Okay, go to the Museo Nacional Centro de Arte Reina Sofia. And then inside, you can see a lot of the works of Picasso, including Guernica. Uh, you need to see that. Go take a look at that. Um, if you get the chance to take a train ride, take a train ride. Uh, you can take the high-speed train to Barcelona. It's only like like three hours or less. And you can go to an, like uh, one of the, one of Europe's oldest and best outdoor markets called La Bucaria, and that's pretty cool too. But in Madrid itself, the one thing you cannot miss is the Museo Reina Sofia. That is spectacular. All right, 
Should Holly have been given five minutes to recover after the first punch after the bell? If you listen to Big John on Brian Stan's Sirius XM show, toe to toe, he said he would have given her time. I don't think he specified how much time he would have given her, but he would have given her time. Any reason you don't have a moderator? I'd volunteer my services for free, right? A lot of people would, but then you have to manage moderators, and we've managed moderators in the past, and that's also a pain in the ass. So there you go. Is there a chance Johnny Hendricks misses weight again? Sure. I mean, you want to take that bet? I don't. Uh, bigger super fight. Mighty Mouse versus No Love or Connor Woodley? Connor Woodley. Come on. All right. Let's do this. We got to call it a day. I appreciate you watching. Give it a thumbs up. Share it around if you can. If you want to send me an email, you may at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. Um, I don't think we have anyone in Halifax this weekend, so we don't have any live on-the-ground coverage, but I know we're going to 204, so stick around for that. I think we'll have someone – oh, I think we'll have someone there for Bellator, if I'm not mistaken. So we will have some Bellator coverage for you. So stick around for that. Um, appreciate you guys tuning in, and I got to go. And until next time, stay frosty. <laughs>